grab your Bible and go with me to Acts chapter 23. Acts chapter 23, if you're guests today, we are on a journey through the book of Acts, and we are landing today in the 23rd chapter as Paul is standing in front of the Sanhedrin to speak about what's going on in his life and to talk about the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 23 And I'm just going to read for you verse number 1 through 11. I want you to walk out of here today being challenged, encouraged, uplifted about the fact that God calls all of us to live bold and courageous lives for Him. Every person in this room, you say, Pastor, I'm quiet or I'm timid or, you know, I don't talk a lot. I'm not one to speak up. I don't really like to engage people. You are not exempt from living a bold and courageous life of sharing your faith. And so we find Paul in a moment where I've entitled today that Paul is under pressure. He's under pressure. So the title is Courage Under Pressure. Hear the word of the Lord in chapter 23, verse number 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Paul said to him, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? Of course, speaking to Paul there. And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Notice verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Paul, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem... So you must testify also in Rome. And may God add his blessings to the reading of his word. Courage under pressure. Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your saving grace of forgiveness and redemption and eternal life. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe, Holy Spirit, 
with all my heart that we need your illumination. We need your understanding. Help us to understand. I believe in the conviction of the Holy Spirit that man will not produce the righteousness of God. But Holy Spirit, we know that the work you do will produce the righteousness in us and through us. And so Holy Spirit, do your work now in our lives as we approach the Holy Scriptures and may we receive the message. May every person in this room walk out of here today with the, with the message in your sovereignty that you wanted us to have. And may we not resist the Spirit and may we not be hard-headed or hard-hearted or pushed back, but may we receive this text knowing that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and every single verse in the Bible has profit to it. That's what your Word says. So we pray for profit in the next few minutes. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And God's people said, A famous 1967 film starring Paul Newman was based on a novel by Don Pierce in which Newman plays the role of a young man named Luke. Now Luke is a southern boy that has a problem. He has a problem stealing the top of parking meters. And so he gets arrested for that, and he ends up in prison uh, because of his bad deeds. When he gets to prison, the prisoners notice that he's a little bit unique. He's a little bit different. He's kind of a quiet, standoff kind of a guy who did not have much to say. He wasn't very engaging, but over time, uh, he began to gain the respect of, of the fellow prisoners there, particularly over the fact that when a fight would break out, Luke would always figure out a way to win the fight. Now, I get this picture, quiet, low-keyed, low-tempered kind of guy. But when things start getting hot and heavy in the kitchen, he finds out, he figures out a way to always come on top. Now, that movie is the movie from which we get the little catchphrase we use, Cool Hand Luke. How many of you have used that before or heard that phrase? In the movie, Luke gets the nickname... He's always called Cool Hand Luke because he was always able to function or he came out of his shell when he found himself under great pressure. Anybody this week felt like Cool Hand Luke? Anybody in your life this week felt some pressure? Pressure on your job. Maybe you were in a meeting this week and you heard the words, you've got to produce more, you've got to work harder, uh, you've got to step up your game a little bit. No pressure there, right? A pressure in our families. Sometimes you have, you know, you've got decisions you need to make or you carry the weight of a particular situation and you just feel like, you feel like you're in a pressure cooker. I would say to you that sometimes I feel pressure in the church and not because there's necessarily any a bad thing going on, but because there's decisions to make and, and, and you've got to maybe fix some things or improve some things. And so you just kind of feel that pressure in your life to produce. Is there anybody in the room today that would agree with me that it seems like our Christian faith is under pressure? That we're feeling the pressure about what we believe? We, we just articulate our faith. We speak what we believe and how we stand. And, and thankfully, many people do it in the right way with grace and mercy in their voice and not angry and mean, but we do it 
We do it in the right way, but yet we feel like we're under pressure uh, as our Judeo-Christian faith is so ridiculed and so questioned. And here's, here's what I know. Some people thrive under pressure, and some people struggle under pressure. I'm not going to ask you which one are you. But as I studied this week, I even thought about today. Today is, is of course, Super Bowl Sunday, and some of you are going, I could care less, and some of you can't wait for the kickoff, right? The most watched event in the world, the most watched sporting event in the world, all eyes on the Mercedes-Benz Dome in Atlanta, Georgia tonight. Can you imagine what it's like to play in a game like that on that kind of stage? You think those players are feeling pressure today? I guarantee, guarantee they are, and I can tell you two people in particular that are feeling it. How would you like to be the field goal kicker for either team? How would you like for the coach to say, all right, run out on the field, and you've got to make some kind of kick to either win the game or send it in overtime. I mean, you can go from being the goat to a bozo really quick, right? Anybody would agree with me today and say, don't sign me up for that. I don't want that kind of pressure. Pressure, pressure. I was uh, thinking about Paul's life here in Acts chapter 23, and it's like, Man, this guy is going through a series of being in the pressure cooker. And over and over and over to the end of the book of Acts, he's going to get put on the spot and he's going to have to speak up and talk about what Christ has done in his life. I was reading a Rudyard Kipling's poem, If, this week, and I thought, man, that fits so much into, into Paul's life and where he's at. But Kipling is writing to young men who want to grow up to maturity. And he says this to them. He says, If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you but make allowance for their doubting too, and if you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about and refuse to deal in lies, or being hated but you don't give way to hating, I like this next line, if you can talk with crowds... And keep your virtue, you will be a man, my son. When I read that, I thought, you know what? Every single one of those statements that he made actually applies to Paul and his life. Here in Acts chapter 23, he is speaking in front of a crowd. He's going to do it multiple times between here and the book of Acts. And he's put under pressure. The pressure is on him about his life, about his teachings, and about his gospel ministry. Now, if you were here last week, you remember that uh, there's a big ruckus on the steps of the Antonius, and the tribune is trying to lead in crowd control, but quite frankly, he's not doing very well. There's a big ruckus that takes place, and when we came to the end of chapter 22, he makes the decision, okay, they're speaking of, of some religious issues, so I'm going to take Paul, and I'm going to put him in the hands of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin being the ruling religious court of Jerusalem at this time. You see that in chapter 22 and verse number 30. And then when we get into our chapter today, under very intense pressure to speak for himself, to speak for the Lord, and to defend his actions and his behavior, Paul begins to speak to the Sanhedrin. If you're following the outline, notice in verse number 1 that Paul begins his speaking by making a statement about his life. 
And I would add that his opening statement is a very interesting one that I want you to kind of think about and digest with me for just a minute. He says, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. What an amazing statement. I would note in there and include that all eyes are on Paul at this moment. But he emphasizes the fact that he has lived his life in front of an audience of how many? An audience of one. I've lived my life before God. And I think there's a message in that for us today. When you walk out of here and you go out into your community, and your home, always remember, yes, there are eyes on you, but the most important eyes are the eyes of God. He sees everything. He knows everything. There's nowhere you can go that He won't be there because He's omnipresent, right? There's nothing that you can do that He will not see because God is all-knowing, He's all-wise, He's omniscient. And Paul just begins that the things that I've been doing, the way I've lived my life, I have lived it before God. But notice he throws in there that as he has done it, he has done it with a good conscience. Now, you may not know this, but this verse has really been bantered and and debated a little bit. What exactly did Paul mean? Was Paul really talking about his entire life? I mean, had Paul always, everything that he had done, did he do it, never make mistakes, and did he never violate his conscience? He made a statement back in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. He was talking about his own life and his zeal for the Lord. He, he mentioned that he was a persecutor of the church, and he said, as to righteousness under the law... I was blameless. Did he mean that my whole life I've never done anything wrong? Well, another view of that would be that Paul is speaking about from the moment of his conversion on the road to Damascus up until this moment. In other words, since I became a Christian, I have been obedient to the Lord and I've done everything uh, that the Lord has wanted me to do. Others have asked, is Paul actually making a statement here of sinlessness? Was he really saying, as far as I know, I've never done anything wrong in my life? Now, I need to remind you right here, there's only one person that has lived a sinless life. And what is his name, church? His name is Jesus. It's certainly not Tim. It's certainly not Paul. And I hate to tell you, but it's certainly not you. The only one who's lived a sinless life is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So we know that Paul was not saying, I'm sinless. As a matter of fact, look on the screen at something he says in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4. He says, I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges, who has the final say-so in everything, who has the final say-so in all matters. It's God Almighty, right? Man does not have the final say-so. God has the final say-so. But he, he mentions something here I want to spend just a minute with you. He talks about his conscience. That my conscience is, he said, uh, in all good conscience up to this day. And so the question comes up, can we really follow our conscience? Is your conscience trustworthy? Uh, is your conscience infallible? Is there anybody in the room that could say, well, I've never, I've never been bothered by my actions or my decisions? 
I think you really need to slow down and think about that statement because, quite frankly, in my years of pastoring, I have sat across the table, uh, you know, having a conversation with someone who I knew was directly disobeying the Word of God, but they were rationalizing it by saying, but my con- I'm doing this and my conscience is not bothering me. Now hear me today, church. Your conscience is not the standard of right and wrong. And, and I want you to think about that. I like what, uh, look on the screen. I like what uh, James Montgomery Boyce says here about conscience. I liked it so much I put it in three slides in my sermon, and I want you to see it. While conscience is something to which we can and should listen, it is not an infallible guide to right conduct. Conscience will tell you that you should not do what is wrong or that you should do what is right, but conscience alone cannot tell you what is right or what is wrong. I like the next phrase, it is only the Bible, the written Word of God that can teach you that. When you have the Bible and when the Holy Spirit is shining on its pages, teaching you what you should do, then conscience will tell you what you ought to do. But if you, have not, but if you do not have the Word of God, then even though conscience will tell you to do, right, or to do the right thing, you will not know what is the right thing or what the right thing is, and you will err as Paul had done. So our conscience is not the standard of what is right and what is wrong. Even Paul, I need to point that out because Paul clarifies that in that 1 Corinthians 4, 4 passage. Best I can tell in my obedience to the Lord and listening to Him and doing what He wants me to do, I have a clear conscience, but he's saying that does not mean that I am sinless. What's the point, Pastor? Here it is. Ready? Our conscience is shaped by the truth of God's Word. This is so important to the church. This is so important, church. Our conscience is shaped by truth. You cannot say, well, I feel like this is what I ought to do if it violates the Scripture. It doesn't matter how you feel. It doesn't matter what you think your conscience is saying to you. Your conscience must be filtered and shaped through the truth of the Word of God. I love uh, what Stephen, the king of Poland, said. He was being encouraged by some of his cohorts to do the wrong thing and to take people who were uh, objectionable to him, who had a different religion from him, to basically uh, to arrest them or to bring them in and force them uh, to believe like him. And this is what he said. He said, I am king of men and not of conscience. The dominion of conscience belongs exclusively to God. The dominion of conscience belongs exclusively to God. Now look at me, Christian. Your job this week, I'm challenging you this week, walk out of here and be more conscious of the fact that you have an audience of one. Yes, I want my wife to be pleased, and I want my family to be pleased by my interactions with them and and, and my coworkers and my church. But at the end of the day, who do I live my life for? I don't live it for their glory, do I? I don't live it for my own glory, but rather I live it for the glory and the honor of the Lord. He's watching me. He's guiding me. He's given me His Holy Spirit, and so I follow Him. My life is to bring Him glory as I make decisions about right and wrong that is filtered through the truth of God's Word through my conscience. 
That's what Paul is saying. Now, here's, here's the important... Tim, why are you spending so much time on this? I'll tell you why. Because this statement is fixing to cause an uproar. It's going to cause an uproar. He's saying, I'm obeying God. And best I can tell, I'm doing what God wants me to do. And as I showed you last week, sometimes you can obey the Lord and do what He wants you to do. And that makes people mad. That makes people resent you. Remember the story I told last Sunday or or the illustration I gave about Mary and Joseph, that they obeyed the Lord and it actually hurt their reputation? They were doing what was right, but yet people frowned upon that. Paul is saying, I've done what is right up until this day. I'm telling y'all, I'm following God and I'm doing what God wants me to do. Now, verses 2 through 5, I think that Paul shows us an act of humility. What happens? He no more got this out of his mouth. (laughs) Then Ananias, the high priest, says, Hey, smack him in the mouth. In Alabama, we would call this getting cold caught, okay? Smack him in the mouth. And somebody listened and obeyed. The Scripture says they just popped Paul right in the mouth. Why? Just because he said, I have a good conscience about the fact that I've obeyed the Lord. Well, man, what happens after this? How many of you know that Paul was human? If somebody cold-cocked you, what would you do? I know some of you very well. You'd cold-cock them back, right? I mean, come on now. That's a moment of tension. What do I do? I know some of you are just so spiritual, and you want to quote the Bible and say, well, I'd turn to the other cheek. Come on now. Somebody gives you a haymaker. Your emotions... We're going to get charged. You're going to go, is it time to fight? Is it time to defend myself? What should I do? And we see Paul. Paul responding in a, in a energetic, fleshly moment like most of us would have done. And it says that he looked. He looked at him. He said to him, who is him? It's interesting. Luke records this. He did not speak to the one who cold cocked him. But he spoke to Ananias, the high priest, because he's the one that told him to hit him. And he said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. How many of you feel in this in this moment? How many of you are going, go, Paul, go? <laughs> Does that statement sound familiar to anybody? Jesus made a very similar statement when he was conversing with the Pharisees. He said to them, you are like a whitewashed tomb that is full of dead men's bones. What's the point? The point is you can paint up a tomb and you can decorate it and put trim and flowers and and all kinds of art. You can make it look all pretty, but on the inside you've still got dead men's bones. That's what Jesus is saying. And, And Paul is saying you can... Dress up the outside and look all pretty and, and, and you can be whitewashed, if you will, for people to see. But God's going to deal with you. He's going to strike you. Who are you to sit here and to judge me and my life over what I've said when you're judging me about the law when you're breaking the law yourself by striking me? Now, you've got to understand that Ananias was not a good dude. Ananias was not a godly, God-fearing, God-centered man. History tells us that he was actually a greedy, self-centered, rich, kind of spoiled brat, if you will, okay? He was all about money, all about gaining possessions, all about fleecing the people. 
So much so that Josephus writes, this is so good, Josephus writes in the Talmud a, a little parody about Ananias. And he writes it this way. Psalm 24 and verse 7 talks about, you know, uh, you hear me pray this a lot. Who will ascend to the hill of the Lord? He that has clean hands and a pure heart. You read on down to chapter 24 and verse 7, and it says, uh, Lift up your heads, O you gates. Uh, who is this king of glory? Let the king of glory come in. The verse is about how that the, at the temple, it's all about God getting all the glory. That when we come together, like us coming together today, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about us lifting up Jesus, right? Man, y'all sound real excited about it. Calm down, calm down, calm down. When we come together, we, we put our eyes on Jesus. It's about God's glory. It's about the eternal. It's not about us. And so that's what 24-7, but Josephus wrote this about Ananias as a parody. He said, lift up your gate, lift up your heads, O ye gates. Then he identifies Ananias, and he says that he may go in and fill his belly with divine sacrifices. What was he saying? Ananias was going in and taking the goods. He was taking the offering. He was taking the sacrifices, the things that were divinely blessed. He was taking those into himself for his own personal gain and not for the glory of the Lord. So some writers say, you know what Paul was doing? You go, Paul. You're the man. You were speaking prophetically about a man who had a high position of leadership that was a dirtbag. But all of that commentary didn't help Paul in this moment because he just got cold cocked, right? But I want you to notice Paul's humility. And I want you to notice how his conscience is shaped through what God said. What was his response in this moment? Verse 4, the men said, those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? In other words, would you talk to God's man in that way? Notice his response. Paul said, I did not. No, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Isn't that an interesting statement? Now, here's the question. You probably not thought of the question, but you need to think about the question. How in the world did Paul not know who he was talking to? He's standing there, right? He's in front of the group. The high priest is there. And Paul says... I didn't know who I was talking to. Was Paul lying? Of course he wasn't. So why did he not know? Well, there's three theories. Let me give them to you real quick. Some say that Paul, of course, had bad eyesight. You know, he had a thorn in the flesh, right, that he always had to deal with. And, and many have written about his eye problem. We, I don't need to connect all the dots with that, asking for help, medical help, and so forth including, you remember when he wrote to the church at Galatia, he included the fact that the letters that he wrote were big letters. In other words, I had to write really big because my eyes were weak. Some have said it was an eye issue here. Others have said that Paul was just being sarcastic. He was saying something like this. Oh, I certainly didn't know you were a preacher. Oh, I... Well, by your actions, you're not acting like a high priest. Some are saying there's sarcasm here. But the majority believe this without knowing full well all the details. 
Paul had been gone from Jerusalem for over 20 years. And so it was very easy that he would not have known who the high priest was, including the fact maybe in this moment, because it was a rushed together meeting, the high priest did not have his garments on that would have identified him and his position. But there's a message in here that the Point Church on this Sunday, 2019, does not need to miss. Paul in this moment spoke the truth. He spoke the truth. But he also turned right around and he respected Ananias' position of leadership. In other words, the person in leadership was not the most godly person or the most righteous person. This person was not even a, a good person, if you will. But Paul in this moment stopped and his conscience was filtered through Exodus chapter 22 and verse number 28 that said, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of the people. So you know what Paul was saying to the room? He was saying, I'm sorry, I messed up. Aren't those some words that Christians ought to say more? Is there anybody in here in your flesh you battle pride? Anybody in here that would be honest enough to admit that your worst enemy is yourself? <laughs> I mean, gosh, I get myself in a mess, right? Because we're prideful. Anybody in here just, you just have to be right about everything? You want to be anybody here that can't humble yourself and say, I heard someone a couple weeks ago was speaking about their upbringing and they said about their father. They weren't being ugly. They were just talking about life. And they said, I never heard my dad say, I'm sorry. I never heard my dad say, I messed up. Jesus is the only sinless person that's ever lived. Paul was pretty good in the Hall of Faith, Hall of Fame, right? Writer, missionary, church planner whatever, all the other titles that he has. But here, in front of this group, Paul says, oh, wait a minute. I have messed up. I violated Scripture. And may we live our life, may our conscience always direct us to the Holy Scriptures to say, I've sinned, I've messed up, Lord, forgive me. And then to ask anyone else that we've offended to forgive us as well. Amen? Number three. In verses 6 through 10, he gives a word of clarity. A word of clarity. Notice how he changes the conversation. Paul begins to talk about what the issue is really over. What's the issue really over here? Paul says it's about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, now stay with me just a minute. I, I just kind of chuckle a little bit. When I'm sitting there studying and I'm reading, and, and, I, and I see how Paul handles certain situations... I've got to say that Paul is really smooth in this deal. He's really smooth. As a matter of fact, Paul Hill said, this is often seen as a clever ruse on Paul's part to divide the assembly and divert attention from himself. How many of you have ever been under pressure, you felt the heat of the moment, and real quickly you're thinking of how can I divert someone's attention? If you say you've never done that, you're lying. Oh, the pressure's on. Uh, hey, look, a bird, right? Hey, look, a squirrel. You try to divert someone's attention. 
Well, Paul is the one under pressure here. He's the one on trial in front of the Sanhedrin. And you know what he does? There's two groups of people in the room, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You need to to add to know that the largest group in the room was the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the group of people that did not believe in a bodily resurrection, which is primarily what the nation of Israel longed for, the resurrection of the dead. The Pharisees, the smaller group in the room, they believed very strongly in a resurrection. They also believed in angels and in spirits. So here's Paul. All eyes are on him. And he says, hey, let me have your attention. Let me tell you what this is really about. This is really about the resurrection. And just like that, there was a pressure release valve (laughs) off of Paul in this moment because the Pharisees and the Sadducees are now pitted against one another. And they start vehemently arguing against each other. I I love what, uh, what David Peterson said. Look on the screen. He was talking about how Paul in different intersections of his teaching and the defenses that he made that he did not just totally disavow his learning and his upbringing. He tried to bring in the pieces of agreement at times. And here he found that that piece of agreement with the Pharisees about a resurrection. He said all that Christianity affirmed of his Phariseeism, Paul continues to embrace. All that in Phariseeism threatened the exclusiveness of Christ's civilic provision, he emphatically rejected. So anything that went against the gospel, he always pushed back. But where he could find agreement, he would, he would always embrace that and enhance it and try to bring it into that present day to show that what you have longed for, a resurrection of the dead, has happened through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. So when he does this, it all breaks loose. As a matter of fact, verse 9 says, a great clamor arose. Some of the Pharisees stood up and they contended sharply. We find nothing wrong in this. Isn't it interesting? Paul won them over to his side. What a clever dude. Hey, wait a minute. They, all they wanted to do was to outshout and to mouse down the Sadducees. And they said, we find nothing wrong with this man. What if, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Which we know that he was visited by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, right? That's who visited him. And so verse 10 says that ascension became violent, became nasty. And here's the tribune, the poor tribune. How would you like to have had his job? He's he's thinking, man, if I can get over to the Sanhedrin, maybe they can civilly solve this. Now he's got another brouhaha on his hand. He was afraid that they were going to rip Paul into pieces. So he told the soldiers to take him, to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him back to the barracks. Now, can we stop for just a minute and can we kind of... Can we kind of interject some humanity into this story? Is that okay? How many of you have been, you know, you've been living for the Lord and serving the Lord and you've, you've tried your best to be obedient and do what God wants you to do and, and in the midst of that, you felt like things were falling apart? Anybody? 
you've been obedient to the Lord and the progress is not visibly what you wanted it to be. I mean, you're serving the Lord and you don't always feel energetic. You don't always feel like, you know, your spiritual gas tank is full. I mean, sometimes in the, in the work of the kingdom, you get tired. You get wore out. Sometimes in the work of the kingdom, you get disappointed. Anybody ever just had this thought? You just kind of throw your hands up and you're like, Lord, I'm trying to serve you. I gave in the offering last Sunday. I went to my small group. I'm even, Lord, for heaven's sake, I'm even doing discipleship. And this is what you want to serve on the platter for my life? As strong a man, a great a theologian, as wise and as great as Paul was, you know what? He was still a man. He was still a man. You know what? You're still a man too. You're still a woman too. You're still flesh too. You're going to get tired. One of the things that I've been working on in my life, be personal here for a minute. This is not in my notes. This is free. One of the things I've been working on in my life is refilling my emotional tank and my spiritual tank. Anybody need to work on that? What is your spiritual replenishment strategy? How do you spiritually replenish yourself? Because we all, at, at optimum, we all want to be bold as lions and brave as bears and speak the word of the Lord to everyone. Amen? But the truth is, sometimes we just feel whipped. We don't feel courageous. If, if you don't have courage, what do you have? You have discouragement, right? What is discouragement? It's a lack of courage. What is encouragement? Man, that's when you get your emotional tank going, right? Y'all tracking with me? How many of you love it when somebody encourages you? I, I was talking on the phone yesterday to a friend of mine. I hope he's not watching live stream. If he is, he needs to hear this again. But he was talking about last Sunday after church, he walked up to his pastor, and he told me something he said to his pastor right after the service. And I'm thinking, you dumbbell, why did you say that right after church? That wouldn't encourage anybody. You speak, a, you speak it might have been something that needed to be said, but not in that moment, at a later time. Because we want to speak words of encouragement, not words of discouragement. Y'all tracking with me? What's the point? Verse 11. Look at verse 11. Paul is taken back to the barracks. And there's no doubt in my mind, based off of verse 11, that Paul was probably tired, he was probably wore out, he was probably thinking, man, I'm not seeing any fruit in my ministry. And God visits him and says what? Paul, take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in rome how many of you are glad when the lord just shows you that he's not done with you yet you, you know sometimes you feel worn out and you feel like you're on the sideline and you're discouraged and you wonder if you're making a difference and and, and look in this in this matter of being under pressure and life just coming at us so hard how many of you just want to go home and run and hide in the bedroom right we all feel that way because of the pressure. And sometimes you feel like maybe that you're not going to get to complete the task that God has for you. And I need to speak this word to you as I'm, I'm bringing this to a close. 
There's not one person, not one person that has ever died and did not complete the mission that God had for them. Let that sink in a minute. Because everyone dies on the day appointed by God. He knows how many days you have to live. He knows your time on this earth. He may have somebody else in line to come in and finish what you started or to carry it on even bigger and better than than what you had going. Or maybe that was just the season for your life where that mission is over with. But God says to Paul, Paul, now's not the time for you to quit. Now's not the time because your emotional drink, uh, your emotional tank is, is drained and you feel empty. I want you to be encouraged because I've got something out there for you in the future. I need you to go to Rome and to speak of the grace of the Lord Jesus. And let me wrap this sermon up. Courage under pressure. We're living church in the last days. I believe with all my heart, I'm convinced of this. That Christ is coming soon. And we know, we know where we're going. <laughs> if I die, I know where I'm going. If Christ comes back, I know that I'm ready. Not because I'm a good person, a perfect person, but because I have repented of my sins. I have acknowledged that I'm a sinner. I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. I've confessed my sins and confessed Him as Lord. And Jesus is now the Lord of my life. So I am ready to go. Are you ready to go? Are you ready? Have you made your preparation? If you haven't, I pray that you will today. So, so the question we need to ask is this. How then shall we live? How then shall we live this week? In the pressure cooker of this life. God is saying to the Point Church, take courage. Be encouraged. You just do what I have called you to do. Be obedient to do it. Be courageous and be bold and be obedient. And I am going to finish my work in your life. Notice God didn't tell Paul, Paul, I'm not going to let you die. Is that what he told him? No, because Paul's going to die when he gets to Rome. But there were more days of his life there was more to the mission. There was more that God had for him. And he wanted Paul to be encouraged. And I pray today you'll be encouraged. That this church, that, that we as Christians, that we will not run and hide under the pressure. We'll not run and vanish and hide. But we will step forward and we will speak clearly of the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus in our life that we will freely and joyfully talk about where we were and who we were and what Christ has done in our life and what Christ has called us to do until the moment that our last day on this earth is done. I read an amazing story the other day about a Japanese soldier. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. I did it in the first service and it was a disaster. But he lived in a cave in Guam in 1944. He fled to Guam as the war was beginning to change and ultimately came to, end, to an end. He went to Guam and he found a cave 
to hide in and to live in. When he entered the cave, he had a pair of trousers and a shirt made up, made up of burlap sack type of material. He later said that for 28 years, he would only come out of that cave at night because he was so overwhelmed with fear and he was so afraid that someone would execute him. Watch this. In spite of the fact he said, I knew the war was over because I had seen some of the leaflets that had been dropped over Guam saying that the war had ended. But in spite of that, he was still overwhelmed with fear. Young people, could you imagine living for 28 years with a diet of frogs and rats and snails and nuts and mangoes? 28 years. One day after 28 years... A couple of hunters found him in this cave. They engaged with him, had a conversation with him, told him what was going on, and they were able to take him back and to reunite, uh, reunite him with his family. They delivered him from the cave of fear. Christians, may we never get trapped. If you've got 28 years or 28 days or 28 minutes left on this earth, may we never get trapped in the cave of fear but may we be courageous for our lord and may we say like job though he slay me yet will i serve him that i am willing to die god whatever you have for me in my life if it's going to advance the kingdom if it's going to spread the gospel here am i lord here am i send me all for your honor and for your glory. May God be glorified as we now respond to what we've heard from the Holy Word. Amen? Let's pray.